Welcome to Nashville Restaurant Radio, a podcast for and about the people of the Nashville restaurant scene. Now here's your host, the CEO of New Light Hospitality Solutions, Brandon Still. And hello, Music City. Welcome to Nashville Restaurant Radio. My name is Brandon Still, and I will be your host today. And we've got a very special show for you uh, all set up. So without further ado, I'm just going to jump right in. We have the pleasure today of having the one, the only, Randy Rayburn. Randy, you've been called one of Nashville's culinary forefathers, and you've been in this industry for 45 years. How are you doing today? Well, I'm, I'm pretty thankful to be alive and to be a survivor, not only of the, uh, the restaurant hospitality industry, but also so many friends of mine have been impacted by the tornado and now the the double triple whammy of uh, the new pandemic and uh, finally our federal and, and and state leaders are beginning to understand the dramatic uh, and serious nature of the situation and its uh, impact on all of us going forward so i want to get into all of that and i want to talk to you about everything you just described but for our listeners if you're out there and you've been living under a rock and you don't know who Randy Rayburn is, tell my listeners who you are. Well, I'm a, I'm a Tennessean, born and raised in Milan, Tennessee. I'm a 27-acre farm with five acres of strawberries. I first uh, washed uh, dishes in the fourth grade at uh, Park Avenue Elementary and worked in Milan Supermarket uh, in uh, through high school and sacked groceries and then later on did every job in the restaurant and didn't really get into the restaurant business until I was 25 while going to night law school thinking I wanted to be an entertainment lawyer. It fortunately came to my senses, and as I tell people, I couldn't pass up a bar to take the exam, so I went to work uh, with a roommate of mine in, in the hospitality industry, and fortunately one of my co-workers who was a Bosque, uh, they were, uh, all the staff but I and, uh, and my roommate were uh, off the cruise lines out of Port Everglades, Florida, and uh, he taught me how to back weight and to do Garadon tableside cooking and more and I taught him how to play wire poker and how to get laid at the gold rush <laughs> sounds, sounds like a good trade since then I've opened up uh, 13 restaurants and working on number 14 and uh, just uh, finally opened my own restaurant with my own money in November uh, November of 1990 I had sold my home and opened up Sunset Grill which was restaurant number 12 and uh, I've worked in and managed more and done a lot of startups and a lot of turnarounds for people letting people pay for my postgraduate education in the hospitality industry I was beverage manager at uh, Opryland Hotel in the early 80s attended Culinary Institute in Hyde Park New York after that for a while did not complete by the program by any degree but I learned a great deal of professionalism and then in 97 bought Midtown Cafe and then opened up Cabana in 2005 with my partner, managing partner Craig Clifton, now deceased chef Brian Yule, and then closed Sunset Grill on uh, New Year's Eve of 2014, uh, which was a victim of really the Great Recession 2.0 of uh, 08, 09, and the flood of 10. Uh, and I'm the, now in the process of uh, opening up uh, the uh, um, Elliston Place Soda Shop for my client, Tony Girantana as well as just recently closed Midtown Cafe and Cabana restaurants. 
last Tuesday and Wednesday uh, because I felt it was unsafe for my employees to continue to be working, not knowing if people were coming in were infected or not. And uh, the good news is all of them have already uh, who've applied, have received uh, unemployment benefits checks uh, to their accounts starting this past Friday. So, so that's got to be... It, it, it hurt to do it, Brandon. It really it hurt my soul, and I've, I cried. Many, many times over it, but I felt it was the best thing to do for my people. Not every, some people have gone on to do, focus on the to-go and delivery business, and for me, that was only losing money, uh, not quite as fast as uh, staying open. Wow, so that was a lot. That's a lot of information you just threw out, and I want to, like I said, I want to get back into your last two weeks of your life and what that's been like, but again, to go back in your time, you said 13 restaurants. You opened Sunset Grill in 19, or I'm sorry, 1990, did you say? Yeah, November 1990. I, I sold my home and put all the chips on the table because uh, my uh, CPA accountant, Gary W. Smith, said the worst thing that could happen was that I was paying rent and looking for a job if things didn't work out. <laughs> and it and it worked out really well. I will tell you that I have a, a special place in my heart for the Sunset Grill as somebody who lived in Hillsborough Village, and somebody who had my rehearsal dinner at the Sunset Grill. I will always remember that wonderful restaurant, the many, many, many dinners I've had there in that little bar. It was just such a absolutely amazing restaurant. For those of you who are new to Nashville that are listening to this, you didn't get to visit the Sunset Grill. You absolutely missed out. Well, I also got to serve your father and other family, and just uh, Nashville's a big, small town, and knock on wood, we were... Uh... We had a great run, but uh, unfortunately, uh, life and circumstances uh, make make this a perilous business where we manufacture perishable food with a highly labor-intensive sales and marketing team. Very, very much so. So you were you opened Sunset Grill, right. and your next restaurant that you did was you said you bought Midtown Cafe. Right, I was looking to do another restaurant to diversify and. Uh, John Petricelli, the owner, called me looking for something. And uh, I told him, I said, John, uh, I told you I was always interested because I enjoyed going there occasionally on Sunday nights when I was uh, not working on Sunday nights and liked it so much the price was reasonable. It gave me terms over five years to pay and uh, bought an existing restaurant that opened up in 1987 and will reopen as soon as humanly possible because I've got people like my general manager, Doug Stevenson, who's been there 24 years plus, Mike White, who's been there two months less than that, Dale King, a senior server there, who has uh, joined me in 1989 at Moonbeams, of all places, and uh, then worked with me at Sunset Grill. And We used to call Midtown Sunset Village, where old Sunset employees went to retire because it was smaller and a slower pace. Uh, <laughs> you know, we've got a number of people, two bartenders with 17-plus years. My chef's been with me 15 years. Sue Chef, 14 years, who started with me as a dishwasher. We've got a, a, a core team of very solid people and, and real professionals because that's that's what we're about you know I, I like to work with people who were dedicated to our profession and this is what we do and we try to do the best that we can and was very proud of what we were doing and we were up uh, actually uh 24 last year uh, year to date at midtown and uh, 33 through uh, through the end of february and then uh Dropped precipitously two weeks ago. Of course. So you've 
You've kept employees that long, and I think anybody who's worked in this industry understands that the turnover rate is very high. In order to keep people that long, you've got to be doing something right as an operator. What's kind of your philosophy behind how you own and operate a restaurant? And started a restaurant, I uh, really believe in top-down uh, initially in terms of the lines of authority and responsibility, but you have to, soon thereafter, after you get through the opening phase, you have to turn it into a top-up restaurant where it's the employee's restaurant, and they have to do what they have to do to make it their place in order so they don't have to move and start over again. I've been successful because I take care of great employees and they tell me who the slackers are and people who shouldn't stay in the kitchen or in the, you know, in the wait station uh, and who they want to work with and, and not. I call it the uh, black ball system in that sense of I let my key employees, the ruling clique, run my restaurants. I let them do their jobs. I give them the tools to do it, the commensurate authority and responsibility to carry it out try to pay good people well and take good care of them. And Lord knows I'm not perfect, but I've been successful. And a lot of my uh, protégés uh, uh, have gone into different aspects of the industry, both as owners, as chefs, and as uh, well, in the wine and spirits and beer beverage industry. And I've probably got 20, two dozen people into that industry alone over the last 30 years. Uh, at least. I mean, I, I still see people. So, I mean, I've worked with you on numerous occasions. However, I've never worked with you. So I've worked in the produce world uh, with a couple different companies, and I've sold produce to both Midtown Cafe, all Midtown Sunset and Cabana, and I've worked with all of your chefs, but I've never worked with you. I've seen you in the restaurant a lot, but I've always you've always let your leaders lead. You've always let the people make the decisions what's best for the restaurants. And it's amazing because your chefs always took ownership. They always felt well, empowered to make the right decisions. Well, that's what I try to do. I try to delegate and give people the, you know, the responsibility as well as the authority to do their jobs instead of holding their hands. And if people make a mistake, okay, learn from it. It's not rocket scientist stuff that we're doing here, but learn from it and move forward. And the people who are good, you know, they they grow. You gotta you gotta let people grow. And, and you know, years ago, my friend Emeril Lagos said I asked him. Said uh, he used to come to town to do TV commercials out of Greenland Productions at our plant. I said, why do you keep opening all these restaurants? He said, if I don't give them a chance to grow, somebody else will. And I've you know I, I've worked with some of the best chefs in town. Deborah Paquette was my chef at Third Coast back in 1985 and 86 and 87. Yeah, she's okay. You know, <laughs> there's none better than there's them, none better you know? no <laughs> not in this town I'm, and uh, I'm fortunate that I'm called consider myself a friend of the Tandy Wilsons and the Pat Martins and, and others the Hal Holdenbox and others who are Margot McCormick and, and her, her partner Heather you know those of us who have been in this business a long time we're not adversaries we're, we're friends and allies because we all realize that we, we really control our destiny of what goes on inside our four walls a hundred percent so you had sunset grill midtown cafe came next and then cabana and cabana is still operating out of the same spot uh in belcourt off of um right there in hillsborough village so when you brought on craig and chef brian i kind of want to talk about them for a minute because they're really special people to you in what they do 
how was your relationship throughout the years? And, and I, I had a very special relationship with Chef Brian Yule, as I did with a lot of chefs, but he was one that was very hard, very relentless, knew what he wanted. But once I feel like I earned his respect, he, he opened up and I really got to see a lot of the genius that was him. How did those relationships shape what you did at Cabana? I want to make a statement about that Brian would say, and you can tell me if you heard it or how many times you heard it. Joy to the fucking world. But he would say that, oh, yeah. Yeah, you know what? And he would, it would be a quick comment. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, first of all, Craig Cliff uh, started with me in 1987 at F. Scott's when it was on Bandywood Drive in Green Hills. He was 19 years old and was getting his degree in aerospace aviation at MTSU and uh, worked there th- with me. And then when I left after I, thought I owned a part of that and ultimately won the lawsuit with my business partners but had to move on uh, and then he rejoined me at Sunset Grill a few years later early on I guess in about 1993 or 4 and has been with me ever since and I gave him an opportunity and Chef Brian and Brian joined us at Sunset Grill in 1999 as a, as a sous chef and quickly became, uh, I promoted him to uh, executive chef because he was the finest chef I've ever worked with. And Brian was from Queens, New York, who'd come down here during high school and came up through the ranks at Opryland Hotel working under Chef Ziggy Eisenberger. And I'd worked with Ziggy, but I was uh, in management of the front of the house, although I'd started in Opryland as an on-call banquet waiter and then posted for management and wound up running, you know, what today would be a $30 million a year outlet uh, uh, called Ruth's, uh, called Rhett's Restaurant with an all-Southern and all-American wine list. Craig was just a very bright, technical person. He's got a lot of tech skills and uh, he decided he did want to be a bus pilot, uh, 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 you know, a bus driver in the sky, as he called it, uh, and loved the restaurant industry. And I didn't want him to, to move uh, from working with me. And Brian was the best I've ever worked with. So I gave them a sweat equity opportunity to earn 20% each of their shares. Brian, unfortunately, uh, you know, mentored a number of, of chefs in this town. And not unfortunately, but he unfortunately passed a, a few years ago at age 52 of, of cancer that came about quite suddenly. And uh, it really had hurt me and, and Craig and all of us to the core, those who knew him, because he was a irascible, lovely sort, but he was the hardest working, hands on, no kind of clipboard chef. He got his hands dirty, prepping plating up, doing everything that's possible as opposed to some of these administrative bullshit artists that call themselves chefs. Well, there you go. That's that's what I was looking for because I know that those relationships that you have are lasting, long relationships. And I want, since I've worked with Craig so long and he's become such a good friend to me and I see him every year at Soup Sunday and he's at so many different events. I know he gives so much time that I just wanted to, I wanted to give him a little love because he's such a, such just an amazing guy, and I'm, I'm, I love him to death. Brandon, we all need to give a little love to Craig right now because he and his wife Allison are at home and have tested positive with coronavirus. Oh. And, it, and it hurts my heart to say it, but I feel the need to be just straight up front with you and everybody that. He, he tests. He's. They're not severe symptoms. Thank God. He got. He went two two weeks ago to get tested, and it took five or six days for the response to come back positive on him. And they had a false negative on his wife Allison, who works at Vanderbilt Children's Hospital, and they're home right now. And he's doing better. And she's 
very weak and, and they both have symptoms but not severity of symptoms that should be appearing by, by now at this stage in the uh, uh, virus's life cycle and so we all have a lot to be thankful for but uh, well I would definitely say <laughs> say a prayer for them I, I, sometimes I just want to cry this week mm. so I don't know how you transition off of that and I think that maybe we can I want to ask just a couple more questions. Then I want to jump into what's been going on. If you could go back to your 25-year-old self when you opened, when you got into this, like really the hardcore restaurant business, what advice would you tell yourself? I would tell myself to continue to do what I did, which was to let other people teach me in what I call the graduate school of life. I'd, I'd gone to a little bit of graduate school for a degree in public administration and, and hated that world, uh, working in that world in government at the, at the state and uh, met metro levels. And then um, went to night law school at the what's now the National School of Law, going to school at night, working during the day. And it just wasn't for me. Uh, uh, the entertainment industry was a little uh, really... <laughs> it wasn't everything that it appeared to be. It was just as not more political than the world of politics on Capitol Hill here in Washington. And I'd worked for Senator Lloyd Benson of Texas on in Washington, D.C. on his campaign and on two other presidential campaigns uh, as fundraising or uh, you know, different kinds of roles of, as a political operative and press secretary in campaigns. And that world was adversarial, and I didn't want to do it, and I I found myself living with a roommate, Jack Wally, who had come back from the um, Culinary Institute in, in, in New Haven uh, before it moved to Hyde Park, and fell in love with the industry. And I, I, I believe I'm blessed to this day because I still love what I do, Brandon. Not everybody can say that about their work life. And I love what I do, and I love most of the people that work with me. And you know, and uh, the ones that I don't love, I you know. They leave me alone, I leave them alone, and we all get along and try to respect each other. As long as there's respect and, and, and caring about each other, things work out. But the advice that I would give to myself then was do what you do, do what you would love and, and learn wherever you could learn. And when it's no longer fun, leave. I used to tell, tell the owners that I would stay until I got to know them and then I'd be leaving. <laughs> That's interesting. Um, that's good stuff. So there is at Nashville State Community College, there's the Randy Rayburn School for Culinary Arts. How did that come about? In 1998, Opperland shut down their culinary apprenticeship program, which I called the indentured servant program that opened up when I was in management at Gaylord in the early 1980s. It was there paying minimum wage and people worked for four years and came out with their certified cook. Uh, working cook papers and uh, at that time there was nowhere else in middle Tennessee to go for a culinary education and the industry we thought was growing pretty fast at that time with the explosion of restaurants and, and hotels even at that point in uh, 1998. I turned to the president of National State Community College and set up a luncheon with him and was advised that, uh, that it was a great idea and it was definitely needed and they'd love to do it, but there was a freeze on and uh, nothing nothing could change that. And I said, well, I, I bet I can un unfollow it. And fortunately, my friend uh, Charles Smith, who I'd known since undergraduate days at University of Tennessee, Knoxville, 
was chancellor of the Tennessee Board of Regents, and I went to Charlie and, and explained to him the situation, that there was a whole industry that employed one out of ten people in Middle Tennessee or in, in, this, M, in this MSA market, and that we had no means of education for people who wanted a, a degree in the culinary industry aspect of that, the hospitality industry, and he agreed with me and opened the doors and said that the frozen the freeze was taken off of that, and we arranged for different people to design the kitchens and vendors and suppliers and, and people donated money and equipment at cost. The school opened the doors in 1999, and we had uh, you know graduating class, brought in a great uh, top-flight instructor uh, who I put on my own payroll at Sunset Grill part-time, whether he showed up or not, to supplement his income. And thus we started the... Uh, the National, you know, the Culinary School, and uh, it was uh, named after me in, uh, I guess, 2013, uh, after uh, we had uh, opened up the Antioch campus uh, in 2011, and then had moved uh, uh, the original uh, single kitchen on White Bridge Road, main campus, out to uh, uh, lower Alabama, excuse me, uh, Antioch, uh, or whatever we're supposed to, southeastern campus now, that's the correct terminology. <laughs> And uh, it, you know, we wound up a few years ago bringing in Chef Paul Brennan from outside Oklahoma State for Penn State guy. He's pretty good, and we've added a, a number of degrees and programs. We've got over two hundred, had over two hundred fifty students. They're all being taught online as of last week, with classes starting back up. And we've got some great uh, instructors, Mary Lou Tate. Uh, we've got Chef uh, Robert Siegel, who you know worked for uh, Paul Prudhomme at Commander's Palace and Trish Madison and others. And uh, you know it's a real thriving program. And we added uh, two years ago the uh, 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 two-year degree program in uh, hospitality uh, management and supervision. So uh, it's kind of the the open door with uh, affordable tuition or even free tuition for those who qualify, and including for adults under the Tennessee Reconnect program to be able to, um, uh, to get a degree. And we've got students of all ages from high school to people in their 50s and even 60s who come there. And we're putting out some good graduates now. And we really have some people helping overlook the program, like Chef Max Knopfel of the Music City, Executive Chef of the Music City Center. Oh, yeah. And, and others. And, uh, you know, I, I recruited Max. I sit on that board of the Music City Center, and I was on the uh uh, the, the old National Convention Center board for 10 years and it chaired the mayor's task force um, for the start of the uh, Music City Center with Marty Dickens back in 2004 and five. So, so, you know, for me, it was about giving back to the community and raising funds for that and uh, taking a little bit more of a leadership role in recent years, uh, trying to help it grow because, you know, we've got a, a fire hose problem and only garden hose solutions. If you're listening to this, and you hear Randy talk about what he did in order to get the culinary the culinary program put together at Nashville State. I think you can hear that story, and it's like, wow, that, that that's cool, man. But in order to do that, all of the work that it takes by somebody to have the passion for an industry to say, I'm going to spearhead this, and I'm going to get it going, and I'm going to make it happen – the amount of phone calls and time and energy that you did while running and operating, owning multiple restaurants and helping people out, the love that you have for an industry in order to, to facilitate that and be on the board for all of these different things, I don't think people recognize how much time it takes and how much love 
it takes to do that. And I want to say thank you. You're very kind, Brandon. But I, I always tell my my friends and staff I get tired of busting tables and really a, a phone call here and a phone call there and a meeting here and a meeting there. It doesn't take that much time. And, and anybody that's worked with me will tell you just how bullheaded I am about getting my way once I decide to do something and, and, and willing it to happen because um, that's just that's who I am because at, at this point in my life, um, my godfather taught me years ago who adopted me when I came to Nashville at 21 and he told me, do something, lead, follow, or get the hell out of my way. And uh, he was a sergeant major in the Marines and I never served in the military, thank God, but but I learned from him, be passionate about what you believe in and whatever you believe in, go for it and make it happen. And don't let anybody stand in your way. Don't run over anybody, but don't let them push you around either. <laughs> no, I, I I love that. And it's just, a, it's you hear right now we're in this time where people are at home and they're sitting around and they're watching TV and they're kind of hanging out and they're displaced. A lot. We have a lot of people who aren't working right now. And I contend that this is a this is a really big opportunity for you to to really hunker down and get stuff done plan figure out what you're going to do i said this is a good opportunity for anybody in this industry to reinvent themselves do some studying learn about wine learn about food learn about all these things and come back better than you've ever been i i start off a podcast last week and i said people are going to be going into this quarantine like a butterfly goes into a um, cocoon or a chrysalis and what comes out of this thing people are either going to be white they're going to have the the quarantine 15 and they're going to have a beard and they're going to be like I guess I gotta get out and do it or you I think we're going to see people come out of this thing that are completely like buff they're going to lose 20 pounds they've been working out every day they've been studying they've been reading books and we're like who are you and people are going to come out of this and I think it's a choice and what you just described was when I'm bullheaded, when I want to do something, nothing can get in my way. And I want people out there to recognize that you can do anything you want if you put your mind to it. This is a tremendous opportunity for people to um, both turn inward and turn outward to, to seek out what they want to do with their lives going forward because this is kind of a reset button for everyone about what's really important in their lives and those people in their lives and those friends and family and others that that matter to them but it's also about growing and how do we grow and there's many online programs whether on the culinary side or the hospitality side there's online programs from the culinary institute or johnson and wales or wine training programs or other spirits and beverage programs that are out there there are all kinds of service programs and there's programs that you can do online from cornell for those people who have that kind of interest i mean there's just all kinds of the master series that a lot of you may have seen on Facebook programs, some very talented people teaching, uh, teaching video courses out there. And, and it's about doing what you love and love what you're doing and whom you're doing it with. And if you don't love what you're doing and whom you're doing it with, it's time to change and just let that change begin now within you. hundred percent. So that's, you know, I think this is a good segue to get into the current state and thank you for taking me down that memory lane i just really want our listeners to know your passion and what you've done for this industry in nashville 
because it's unparalleled in my opinion. And I'm like I said, I'm honored to be speaking with you today. So let's. Uh, it's just me, Brandon. I know, but <laughs> come on, Randy. You can. You got to know I it. I don't take myself that seriously. Why should you or anybody else? <laughs> well, I I, anyway, I I have a healthy respect for you. So tornado happens. Uh, early March, Monday night. There was a tornado. What? How did you find out? Were you up that night? Did you know that the tornado came? What was that Tuesday morning like for you? I'd had my sound on my phone turned off at bedside. I woke up because of the noise and maybe the weather alerts on my phone. And I heard the sound and, and, and really rolled over and went back to bed. I live in East Nashville, about a mile from where it occurred. And my ex and our two young boys, 12 and 6, were about uh, a half mile from that. Uh, you know, and, and it hit friends of mine, businesses on, 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 on Main Street, as well as going through Five Points. And friends whose homes are totally destroyed. And restaurants that my boys love, I love taking to, like Soda Shop or Burger Up. And, you know, Five Points Pete pizza thank god margo was spared uh and others and you know uh lachlan was you know out of power for 10 days and you know more other people were destroyed i mean it, best brands lost their warehouse you know that that night and they bought a new warehouse on friday and we're up and running at 90 plus percent by the following wednesday so nashvillians don't know the meaning of no but i woke up and, and f to a flurry of text that i hadn't paid any attention to because i was sleeping until i woke up at 5 30 and realized that the world had changed for a lot of people and saw the drones flying on television just like oh my god because i i saw homes of friends that were decimated and literally destroyed um to, and friends like Kim Totsky and Lars and just, you know, who just opened up Turnip Truck there on, on Charlotte you mm -hmm. know, the last couple of days. Uh, it's just uh, devastating because those of us who had gone through the 98 um, tornadoes, you know, it happened again, you know. And as the old saying goes, and there wasn't a trailer park anywhere nearby because <laughs> uh, it... Uh, it really cut a swath, and not only here, but Mount Juliet, and, and God bless the poor people in Putnam County, Cookville area, that that were you know even more impacted and more deaths there. It really put a hurt on a lot of people, and and, and then we have this uh, follow-up sucker punch that we saw coming, uh, and unfortunately, our federal and uh, state leaders uh, have done all too little and too late to uh, to. Uh, prepare properly and to prevent um, the anticipated now hundreds of thousands of deaths great great leadership yeah oh. so so that's that's the the current state right so march 13th they closed all the major leagues nhl closed major league baseball nba all that stuff closed and during that time what did you do? So you still have Midtown Cafe is open and Cabana was open at the time on March 13th and all these things closed and then all of a sudden it becomes a, it becomes real. What's the first thing that you do as a restaurant owner? Well, Brandon, I had been evaluating it for some time because uh, three weeks before the 17th, 
I had canceled our spring break trip to Orlando because I'm the kind of guy that uh, reads voraciously uh, every source that I can get uh, when I've got some downtime. Um, I read digitally the Times and the Post daily as well as the scan. I scan them all, including the Tennessee and other sources of information. And I, I felt that there was a, a, a storm coming to our country and that it was not being taken seriously. And I prepared myself and, and my businesses for that. I uh, actually had, uh, I, I bought cases of food. Uh, I'm not a prepper, but I actually went ahead and, and bought a number of things for myself, uh, my family. I didn't want to scare everybody by talking about my real concerns, but I was preparing for more challenging, troubling times. And I unfortunately um, made the right decision, but being the father of two young boys, I, I had to be prepared to, to, to look after them. As far as my work family and businesses, I was talking to people about that. And our business was, you know, the week, uh, the week prior to the first two weeks of uh, the first week of March was phenomenal. I mean, record breaking numbers up, up over 35%. And, uh, then the week before we wound up closing on the 17th at, at Midtown on the 18th on Cabana, uh, we were doing fine in the middle of the week until those announcements. And by the weekend, business had dropped. Business had dropped at both restaurants, uh, approaching 50%. And on after the mayor's board of health order on Sunday, I knew that uh, things were going to get difficult very, very quickly. We opened for business on Monday. I had prepared a whole lengthy uh, email and statement of what we were doing with enhanced COVID-19 serve safe procedures that were kind of uh, borrowed from everywhere I could find online around the country in order to keep our staff and keep our customers safe. Uh, But I I realized uh, that Monday that as the bottom fell out of customers dining with us that I couldn't put my staff, myself, my sons, everybody else's families at risk. And I knew that uh, we didn't have sufficient funding and resources because um, after closing Sunset, I, I really struggled financially, paid all my bills and, and debts, then had a divorce and didn't have, after my lawyers got through with it all, I didn't have much left uh, in the way of savings, but we fortunately had no long-term debt at Midtown Cafe nor Cabana. And I realized that uh, having gone through the closing of Sunset that cash is king, in business triage where you make the hard decisions and do what you feel you have to do to do the best for the most people and i wound up uh, closing uh, midday at, after lunch on tuesday after we cut staff on tuesday day at midtown and sent people home and then cabana did 98 dollars that night I, I didn't know that craig had tested positive but uh, we spoke that next morning and it had done 98 dollars in sales and i said we're closing we have to do what we can do to be able to come back when the marketplace changes and people feel safe to come out and dine with us again. And that uh, for me, uh, for what we sold to people, uh, to go food and delivery food or, or, I mean, we, we've done seven individual total of seven orders of, of to go or delivery food on Monday at Midtown cafe. And that wasn't going to keep anybody employed and only lose more money. So in order to cut my losses, I made the hard decision had people gave people information that that afternoon on how to sign up for unemployment. Amanda, 
Uh, one of the managers and event planners at Cabana did the same for all the employees at Cabana, and a lot of them started receiving money Friday online. Uh, and hopefully, we'll get their federal government checks from the CARES Act that were passed on Friday for six hundred dollars a week for all those who are eligible for Tennessee unemployment benefits, which is fairly limited. Uh, it benefits at two hundred seventy-five dollars a month, but uh, Tennessee.gov. Uh, uh, Jobs for Tennessee is the place to go, and you can re- register online, and I recommend everybody do it now because this is going to be a lot longer than anybody wants it to be, and a, and a lot more. And it, to, to quote Dr. Fauci, it, it's only it, it's only going to get worse before it gets better. Even President Trump realizes that now. And the governor, I read just before coming online with you, has issued a stay-at-home uh, instructions finally uh, because Tennessee had been ranked 49th uh, in preparedness by Fox Business News as of my reading of Saturday. So thousands of people are going to die here in Tennessee. No, no one knows how many, and everybody thinks this is a flu. Get over yourself. Quit fooling yourself. If, you know, I, I'm so mad at these people who you know don't care about people's lives of whatever age group. Oh, and by the way, Brandon, the largest number of people in Tennessee with the coronavirus are age 21 to 30. Woohoo! I, I think there's like 40% of people who are taking it very, very seriously. There's 40% of the people that are like, this is a hoax. And then 20% of the people are like, I'll be okay. I fall into the 40% of people that are like taking this thing very seriously and not leaving my house. I feel like people don't, you can't see this thing. You don't know what surface it's on. The only way to stop spreading it is to stay at home and not go out and spread it. And it's, I see people on Facebook posting pictures of like hugging friends and hey, it's 80 degrees outside. We went canoeing and I'm like, stop doing that. Just put it on hold for another couple weeks. Stop it. Brent, Brandon, Darwinism will be at work. <laughs> Survival of the fittest, huh? Natural selection. Malthus predictions are, are coming full fold, and the, the greatest impact on, on climate warming is happening right now as economic uh, activity slows down across the planet slow, slowly, you know, one, one area at a time. As one of my best friends called it, he said, it's a slow-moving biological asteroid hmm. hitting our planet. That's a, it's an interesting way to put it, for sure. And it's humbling when you think about all those people in other countries and refugee camps and others. There's, what, 40, 50 million refugees around the world that have no... Look at India with 1.3 billion people, you know, locked down. Even with rate, rates of 2%, what's 2% of 1.3 billion people? So that's a big number. Yeah. What's 2% of, 300, of 330 million people in this country? 660,000. This is no joke. No. This is serious, life-altering reality. And we can all see it every day. And I think that, so you think it's going to get worse before it gets better. What do you think? I agree, that, with, I, I agree with Dr. Fauci. I'm glad that she, that he and uh, Dr. Burks were able to convince the president and his advisors of the seriousness of it all. And I wish we'd taken it a lot more serious, a lot sooner, and had the PPE equipment that our, you know, first line of pre- defenders. It's, you know, the medical industry and profession are, are, the, are 
people fighting on the first lines and willing to to put their own health at risk you know to save people and and god bless them for doing it because i can't imagine the battlefield conditions that are going on in some of the major cities now in in seattle and in in chicago and detroit and Mm -hmm. i mean they're all reading about it elsewhere and i've been reading uh emails from friends of sent from the doctors in new york and other places really talking about the realities of the decision-making that you have to make about who lives and who dies and do not resuscitate. Yeah, that's, that's, that's just a scary, scary thought to think. And I've talked about flattening the curve and uh, on this show that we've got to, we've got to just slow it down. I feel like everybody's going to get it at some point, but not everybody at one time. The way that this thing spreads, our hospitals are just going to be completely overtaken and, um, We've got to pay attention. This is real. We Americans are not going to do what Germany did or South South Korea did or Hong Kong or Singapore. I became really aware of it because my physical therapist that I work with is from Hong Kong and her mother is 80 is still there. And we would talk about it or text each other or send each other articles about what was going on there. Going back to, uh, you know, early February. And that's what heightened my awareness of it and following it. And, uh, I think that uh, America is going to pay a very heavy price for this unpreparedness, and uh, I, um, uh, I'm thankful for some of the leadership that we have had. I'm thankful that Congress is finally able to act in a bipartisan manner uh, in, during this time of crisis. But this is going to make the Great Recession and or the, the Depression of, of the 30s look like child's play. So what do you think this is going to play on the Nashville restaurant scene? Are mom and pops going to be able to survive this? Let me talk a little bit more macro than just Nashville. I think there are 11 million independent restaurants in the United States that employ 11 million employees. I fully see um, without proper help from the federal government in terms of governmental guaranteed loans, and, and other factors, uh, I fully see 30 to 50% of those businesses closing uh, within a year. I think those same numbers can apply here. It depends upon the leadership of our elected leaders, both at the federal and state level, and to the degree that they realize that helping with this safety net to ensure our economic recovery uh, is as quickly as possible. There are lessons to be learned from uh, 8, 9, and 10, and the economic stimuluses that worked and didn't work. I've read some of that work by Mark Sandy and others uh, last night, but I think that, you know, overall, uh, we Americans uh, have not taken this seriously, whether it's the information that's out there from Johns Hopkins or others about what to do and what not to do. Uh, the, the full the full impact of the transition of our industry to online to go and delivery is going to be accelerated for those people and companies who do survive the uh, the, 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 the changeover. Mm-hmm. Only those businesses that really understand uh, cutting overhead and, and survivability and whether or not there's assistance at the, with mortgages on moving some of those payments to the back end, uh, whether it's mortgages or, or, or rent or other factors, or people have empty buildings and no one will be available to rent them um, um, at loans that nobody's going to be able to pay. It's like a friend of mine said he talked to his uh, limousine uh, vehicle company that he leases his vehicles from. And they said, we don't want your vehicles. We're, we'll work with you. 
we'll put we'll put your we'll put your monthly payments on the back end and extend it. And it's yeah. going to take that type of attitude of businesses or the bankruptcy courts are going to be filled anyway. And, and God help all those people who are, uh, in, you know, self-employed individuals and people in the gig economy, musicians or people in the hospitality industry who are, you know, work gig to gig or work in different, you know, serving pools for banquet waiters and, and catering companies and otherwise. This is going to totally uh, change it. And uh, a lot of people are not going to be able to uh, economically survive this, Brandon. I'm, I hope I'm wrong. I Me pray too. I'm wrong. Me too. I don't think I am. <sighs> so there's a lot of, lot of, um, a lot of praying, a lot of hoping, a lot of um, waiting and seeing. And I think the toughest part here is we kind of have to wait every day and hope that I, I've said this before, and I heard this on Colbert one time. He said, there's never before that actions that you do on a daily basis affect other people. So decisions that I'm making about where I go, what I touch, and how I socially distance myself affects everybody else. And you have that responsibility right now to recognize that. And I hope that if you're listening out there, you do recognize that and um, you stay safe. For, for the first time here in America, we're all in this together and your actions impact other people and the if you contract the, the virus you won't know it and you won't realize it for possibly two weeks meanwhile yeah. it's geometric progression one person infects 10 people 10 people infect 100 people 100 people infect a thousand people and on and on and on for 14 days one person infects 59,000 people without social distancing it's, it's this shit's real it is absolutely real so i'm going to pivot a little bit into um <laughs> back into back into i'm gonna i'm gonna lighten the mood a little bit i want to talk about music <laughs> that city would be good brandon <laughs> well it, kind of i mean we're kind of we're gonna get back into this a little bit i'm sure but music city hospitality consultants that's your new company yeah, we started in January a year ago with my partners, Bob Bedell, who's 35 years with Coca-Cola Consolidated, retired as the senior vice president of a multi-billion dollar company. Uh, and Bob and uh, Paul, Chef Paul Brennan, who's actually a PhD all, as well, who is head of the uh, uh, certified master chef, uh, who is head of the culinary school at National State. We, we had some substantial clients last year i'm uh, allowed to say that some of our clients included uh, uh mgm uh, park hotel that's going to be opening up in uh, the national yards project uh, hopefully in, in a couple of years as well as uh, tony girantana we're currently uh, working with and I, I currently have a exclusive em em employment relationship with him which i'm thankful for and blessed because i have no other source of income with my restaurants closed and we're working on opening up the 80 year old legacy iconic uh ellison place soda shop brand uh sometime construction uh, there's hopefully sometime this summer in july construction's currently uh, underway and uh, uh Paul and I were on an online auction last week and bought uh, some $9,000 worth, uh, paid $9,000 for about $50,000 worth of used equipment and smallwares from the former Elston Place Soda Shop in Cool Springs, Franklin, that closed down uh, last summer. Oh, wow. 
So to talk me through this. So when you say where you have an exclusive with Tony Giratana, it sounds like you're going to auctions, you're buying things, and you're doing menu development. Are you doing schematics for inside? Are you putting, are you doing like the whole kitchen layout, the restaurant layout? What all are you actively doing for the Elliston Place Soda Shop? Well, after working with Tony on a previous project, we started on this project in the fall because he had an option to purchase the assets. And I've been, Tony retained my services uh, really back in December on this project, and we uh, took him to uh, uh, Inman Design, Nancy Inman, who I'd worked with before on both Sunset Midtown and Cabana Restaurants is to be the, the only hospitality designer based in Nashville who has had national and international experience uh, almost exclusively in the hospitality industry. There are other commercial designers who've worked in that, as, as well as they've been designed for the CAD CAM aspect of the, of, of the uh, design of the uh, equipment package and everything associated with that. Tony retained my services to be the full-time project developer, so I didn't devote any of my other time uh, away from Midtown to uh, any other clients that my, our consulting company might have. And Paul and Bob have, have availability and are working with some other clients on, on that basis. But I'm excited because, frankly, at this point, affordable comfort food is probably going to be the right kind of market to be opening in this rest in this environment when people do when we do get to the other side and people are willing to come out and or order affordable food that's going to be freshly made scratch cooking in the home as i call it a la carte arnold's by the way arnold used to work for arnold's father used to work for the soda shop and uh there was you know Home cooking was what was fresh out of the seasonal out of the farms here in Middle Tennessee going back when the soda shop opened up in 1939. And it was uh, really split off from the, uh, really uh, before then, but it was split off from Chandler Pharmacy. And they put a wall up because the customers were hurting the, uh, getting in the way of the, the operation of the pharmacy. So that's how the soda shop opened up then on Elliston Place back then uh, by the Chandler family. Take a look at the signage there of the uh, Chandler family uh, building there that's uh, yeah. there as part of it. And uh, I'm excited about it. Uh, we, we we spent about five months negotiating with the landlord, and uh, were unable to uh, achieve a uh, a lease that was uh, reasonable. Uh, we met, we wound up moving next door to the 1907 Telegraph Building because of uh, because uh, you, you, if you can't make a profit, you don't open up. Yeah. So that's a good question. I want to. I want to. I have this question I wanted to ask you, and I thought of this like last week because I had this dream that one day I get to interview Randy Rayburn. What? Uh, talk me out of opening a restaurant. If I want to open a restaurant, talk me out of it. Let me let me tell you what I tell people. You know, up for years, uh, people would come to me or my best friend Jerry Baxter, and Jerry opened up Rascals and Sperry's and Julian's and other great restaurants in Nashville's history and Jerry's uh, I guess opened up about 20 restaurants including 20 uh, 13 uh, Argos for Mitch Boyd and Shoney's Corporation and um, people would come to us and we'd go tell you what you do if you will give us a $25,000 check up front 
and sign our contract and follow our contract to the to the letter of sp- every specific provision in the contract, we will guarantee you uh, in funds that in funds of you know credit 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 worthy funds that we will save you a million dollars over ten years if you follow our contract exactly. And they go, what's the catch? We say, the contract reads, don't do it. Give me the money. (laughs) You know, I've had so many people who've never worked in the industry who have no idea what they're doing. Oh, I understand a chart of accounts. I can open up a restaurant. It's not that easy. By God, we manufacture a perishable product with highly labor-intensive skill sets and creativity, and none of it tastes exactly like your mother's or grandmother's food, wherever they're from. And and then you've got to market and, and sell it in a highly labor-intensive workforce that has been known to have some behavioral issues that we won't go into. Hint, hint. You know, <laughs> I used to be, I was an alcoholic. There's no question about it. Now, I've, I've, I've had that wine since, but I don't drink. I've never drank like I did before, which was after work way too much to take the edge off. And uh, I was pretty stupid, you know, in my 20s. And thank God I survived all that. Yeah. But, it, you know, the reality is, is that uh, it's a tough business. And, and the, the failure rate is not as high as they say it is, but it's really probably 20 or 30 percent in the first year and you got to realize that three out of five small businesses in america failed the first five years anyway and i would note for anybody if a business is not growing after three years sell it or close it it's not going to it's not going to make it so i think that's the thing i think anthony bourdain put it really well when he said people tend to throw really nice wealthy people throw good dinner parties and their friends come over and they say you should open a restaurant and they go, you know what, after they hear that eight, ten times and they find a spot that's for sale and they open a restaurant and then after all their friends start coming and they comp everybody, then they go, oh, we got to actually sell food. And then the dishwasher quits and the you know sewage backs up in the back and they go, oh, what's going on here? This isn't, uh, this isn't as fun as I thought. And six Brandon. months later, everything's different than that fun, I throw good dinner parties and it doesn't work out. One of my instructors, Tom Schmitter, who taught American Bounty at the Culinary Institute in Hyde Park, the, the non-Langley version, as we called it, um, the, the other CIA, that uh, the, the, the super wealthy buy sporting teams for their ego gratification and amusement, the merely wealthy buy restaurants. Now, that's for, for a long time, a lot of people would invest in high-end restaurants to gather social prestige or be investors of that. And that's, that's been going on up until... Uh, Last week, uh, or two weeks ago, uh, and I, I, I'll just say that there's it's highly speculative industry. I think only the not opening up nightclubs, which my friend Chris Cobb would discourage anybody from doing that, who owns the Exit Inn. Uh, but I think that you know it's a tough business. Why? Because I, as I tell clients when they ask me, why is it so difficult? I said, if you don't know every job in your business there's a term for you and they go what's that and then i hit them with hostage if they leave or you don't know how to teach somebody how to do it right you're a fucking hostage yeah that's a that's a it's a true story 
So, you and I know it. We've been in the trenches. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. I, I, I do it today. And that's one of the things I, I like. You know, I love energized by service. I know you are, too. I think that there's something about people that are that have a true, genuine spirit of service in it energizes you to do that you kind of want to be hostage I, I you get energized by being there by being in the weeds and if you get pulled out of it you start missing it it's almost like you get these cravings for it and i think those are the people that when they those people that run restaurants when you see you you mentioned busing tables you're one of the people who i figure is is old school right in the form of i've walked into sunset grill a hundred times probably more than that and most of those times, you are standing there at the front door greeting people, shaking hands, welcoming them into your establishment, bussing tables, running food, doing all of the things that owner-operators do. And I have a, a friend who owns a restaurant. She goes, every time you walk into a restaurant and you see the owner sitting at the bar drinking, start start looking because they're, they're going to sell pretty soon. They're going to close. Yeah, that, they're not going to make it. They're um, not going to make it. Most of us are adrenaline junkies. Who love the business, mm-hmm. and that's why we do it. I want to I want to press the little bar and get some more adrenaline and, and go faster. I, I have that addictive uh, genetic behavior apparently that I, I got from my uncle and my aunt, uh, unfortunately, and I've been able to overcome that issues on alcohol. But I love the fast pace of the industry, whether it's in the front of the house or the back of the house. And I haven't cooked for professionally in 30 years, but I loved expediting because occasionally I just want to be away from the people and just expedite the line and make it hum. And when you're doing 600 covers or 900 covers on a night at Sunset Grill, it's like, as one chef told me, uh, David McKelvey, who uh, ran all of the uh, Emeralds restaurants uh, uh, for several years, and now has his own place, Johnny's in uh, New Orleans. Said it's like driving the Indy 500 twice. You better not <laughs> fucking wipe out because okay, you'll crash, and then you got to start up and do it again, one ticket at a time, to get back up to 200 plus miles an hour. <laughs> yeah, it's Mother's Day brunch, you know. Yeah, that's oh what it God. is. It's scary. New Year's Eve. Oh my God. Yeah. So my next. Oh my God. Oh. But you know, I think that you just answered my next question, which was going to be talk me into buying or starting my own restaurant. And it's that. It's that endorphin rush. It's that moment. It's being in the weeds. And I think that uh, you can define it as organized chaos. Just that that excitement. And then when you're done with it, looking at the guy next to you, going, "We just own that shit, man. Did you? We just like." There's a camaraderie there that's unlike anything else, I mean, to me, that I've done. It, it, it's going into, you know, kind of work battle, but at the same time, it's it's also about a brotherhood and sisterhood of teammates, and and those people know who's, who's, who's doing, who's helping each other. They know who the slackers are. They know who the worker bees are. They know who the real leaders are. Because I mean, I've tried to lead by example as much and as often as possible. I've slowed down through the years, but I've been working the door at Midtown for, for years recently until uh, this January, but because of my role with Tony, I hired a former Sunset employee, Christy Rickard, to come work with us, uh, who's been working at Park Cafe for a number of years. And the reality is, it's about surrounding yourself with good people a good leader front or back of the house or anywhere in a restaurant industry surrounds themselves with people as talented or hopefully more talented than themselves so that they have a a great a coach surrounds themselves with great players and then you train them as best as you can and cross train them to be able to do the job but 
the customers don't, uh, they only see if things are right or they're not perfect. And the difficulty is in building up the consistency and getting to, uh, you know, uh, zero, zero defects or getting to 99.99% of everything that hits the table is, is done right. Hot food, hot, cold food, cold, and the way it's supposed to be done, you know, so that the customers react seamlessly I, I was so proud of, of, of midtown and we had a 4.8 rating on open table most of the time in, in, in the past year we certainly weren't perfect and for some reason brandon the, some of the bachelorette parties didn't like us because we were we were basically old school and, and not trying to be but that's what cabana was trying to be cabana was aimed for, for the 20 and 30 year olds and and the bachelorette parties you know that was one of the top places in town for that yeah Maybe that, Maybe that's why I didn't go there that much because I felt too old to walk in on a weekend <laughs> to go see Craig. <laughs> yeah. So what's the? Let's talk about old Nashville versus new Nashville. What do you think of what's happened to our city? I think it's a, a function of of music. We've got one of the most creative communities in, in the country, and we don't have you know an ocean. We don't have mountains. We've got songs we've got music of all kinds and a creative people that have come here and people who who grew coming here because of the Nashville brand and it started out you know with uh, the, the fish jubilee singers going to england and, and saving the school but you've really had the growth of the gospel the christian and, and and all the music industries it's not just a country town anymore oh, no. i mean people know about nashville because of the grand Ole opry and and hee-haw Keyhaw internationally is what put Nashville on the map, mm-hmm. and then you had the, the national network TNN. Uh, you know that was a twenty four seven three sixty five media promotion of Nashville. We're a Sunbelt town. People want to come visit the Sunbelt because it's relatively warm. We're a warm, inviting, pleasant place, and people started coming here. And more restaurants grew because more people were coming here. And I was just looking at uh, some numbers uh, that I've shared with some folks uh, today uh, earlier by email, which is that, you know, as of the end of January, there were a hundred and almost 28,000 hospitality workers in the Nashville MSA statistical area. Wow. That's a lot of direct employees, not indirect employees, direct employees. Twice, more than twice the number of manufacturing employees in that same region. Not just Davidson County, but, you know, Rutherford, Wilson, Williamson, you know, the others, you know, Robertson, the others, Maury County, the other surrounding counties with us. Not even counting Clarksville, which is only 40 minutes up the road from us, which would add another you know, 150,000 people, you know, plus mm-hmm. for, uh, the air base, uh, plus the 101st base, you know. Well, I have kept you here for an hour, but I do have, um, I've got some rapid fire questions that I want, I'm going to ask you. Definitive book on service or leadership? <sighs> service, uh, probably any of the books by, uh, um, God. From Chicago, who committed suicide, Charlie Trotter. I was going to say Charlie Trotter, Lesson in Service. Yeah. It's a great book. Yeah, poor guy. Yeah, yeah I, I knew Charlie. Yeah, I had friends who worked for him. We, mm. we met on a number of occasions. Moving along. Leadership. What's your number one book on leadership to share with people out a, there? I, I don't have a number one book on leadership. I read all that stuff, on, you know, back at the 80s and 90s and kept reading that stuff. 
I, I think for some people, really the whole one minute manager series is something that really is, is something to embrace as a framework for understanding how to be a positive servant leader. That's a that's a great one. Who moved my cheese? Ken Blanchard. Uh, oh yeah, Blanchard's just wonderful. He's amazing. Yeah. All right. Um, favorite restaurant in Nashville you don't own? Um, would f- go between three places. Okay. Uh, City House. My friend Tandy mm-hmm. Wilson and his lovely bride and and and, and, and children. A little BLT. <laughs> uh, and. Uh, Margot, Cafe Margot, and Bar with she and Heather who have Marche also. Yep. But I love love Margot. Had my uh, wedding brunch there, uh, uh, and also uh, probably a Lachlan Table. You know, I've, I've got a lot of other restaurants that I like, like Kendrietta Reds. Others I think are, are fabulous. You know, new on the scene, but uh, you know, I love that ETC. You know, I like ETC and Deb yeah. as, as much as any of them. Uh, just we're great friends, and her husband Ernie and I, we all go back. Ernie and I have the same birthday, different vintage. That uh, <laughs> you know, we, we won't talk about what vintage that is. Have you ever gone <laughs> fishing with Ernie? Hmm? Have you ever gone fishing with Ernie? Yeah, Ernie taught me how to go fly fishing. I was a group with muddy water fishing. I'd never <laughs> gone fishing with fish that you could actually see that you're you're casting for. <laughs> That's that's a that's a side goal of my podcast one day to become friends with Ernie enough to where he take wants to take me fishing. Um, go go, to, go down to the, the, the liquor wine shop in the Gulfs that he runs for uh, for Ed and uh, you know you know uh, chat him up. You know Ernie <laughs> loves that shit. Yeah, he's a he's a good dude. So who's your who's the who's the best chef in Nashville right now? Deb. All right, I knew you were gonna say that. What's your favorite movie of all time? Movie? Yep. Mash. Mash. Okay. The Say. original Mash. Yeah. What's your favorite band? Uh, the Beatles and Sgt. Pepper was my favorite album ever, to this day. That's a undeniable. It's a fantastic album. Uh, I I I shared that with Richard Courtney earlier uh, a couple of days ago when he had uh, posted a little bit about that on Facebook. So anyway. What's your favorite food to cook at home? Uh, favorite food to cook at home is probably, you know, grilling, uh, charred cow flesh. <laughs> charred cow flesh. That's my favorite too. What's your, what's a hobby people don't know that you like to do? A hobby that people don't know I like to do. Well, I'm, I'm just a, I'm an avid reader, but, uh, I, I with my two young boys, uh, my time is taken up with them, uh, Taking Dean out riding by recently in the last few days, uh, where nobody is, certainly don't want to do it on the streets of Nashville. But you know, they are my life, they are my focus since Duke was born 12 years ago, and they're the greatest blessing I have. So they are my hobby and they are my life. And you know, so being a dad, that's that that's my life outside of work. That's awesome. That's I, I completely concur. I have four and six year old boys, and they are my every being. I just and they they bring so much sunshine and joy to my soul. I don't even know what to tell you. I totally get that. Um, they are my they are my joie de vie and my raison d'être. <laughs> my last question for you, and this is going to be the final one: Nashville Culinary Mount Rushmore. I'm putting you in there. 
Who are the other three people on that mountain with you? Well, Chris Chamberlain did an article on that back for the 30-year anniversary article, and it was Margot and Deb and myself, and we all, all three of us nominated Jody Faison to be there with us. There you go. Now, that's that's a, in, in recent years. There, there are certainly others before us. And there are people now in in this century, and I knew Margot when she worked Faison for Jody before she uh, went to New York, and I helped among others try to convince her to go up there to grow and evolve and she certainly did mm-hmm. and she opened up her you know Margot, i guess what 2005 2004 5 and tandy worked for her i met him out in uh, trevinia and in uh, sonoma and napa valley years ago uh, and just uh you know his his aunt and i were gt undergraduate together and i was father a food broker big tandy and um she opened know, she opened Margot in 2001 uh, 2001 great mm-hmm. all right see my memory's not exactly there <laughs> <laughs> she was she was very gracious and spent some time with me um the week before last when this first thing happened and and um she just has the the most the kindest soul was one of the most sweetest most gentle people that i've had a moment to talk to just honest and as genuine as they come it just broke my heart to sit and talk to her about having to close a restaurant and the people that work for it how much she cares and it just, she's just such an amazing person. She, she and Heather are truly an amazing couple, and I empathize exactly with everything you're saying there because it just hurts so much. I, I, I was talking to one person on my team earlier today, and, and it just, it hurts sending them information about where they can maybe get a five hundred dollar, you know, from a from a hospitality foundation from the NRA and. Just, you know, knowing that this stuff, Brandon, is going to go on at least through May at the earliest. Even the models that Trump was talking about yesterday don't end in April. They end in May. And that's optimistic. It is optimistic. June 1st, I think my wife's telling me that he's hoping that this thing, we can we can flatten it and we can start getting out and stopping. That's a, that's a long time to me. So... Randy, is there anything you want to say to the restaurant community right now? Any like final words? Come back. All of those who put their mind and heart and soul to it into whatever profession you're in, but particularly in the hospitality business, there will be room for those who want to work and will do what, what it takes to survive. It will not be easy. Mm-hmm. I will reopen. I will open Midtown Cafe and Cabana and Elston Soda Shop. When I don't know, but I know if I can do it, you can do it if you will it to be so. I love it. Well, thank you so much for spending uh, as much time as you did with me today. It's an honor to have you here, and I wish you nothing but safety and health. And um, hopefully, this thing gets over faster than we all anticipate. We can get back to living our lives uh, as we did before. And say hello to your father for me. I will, and I'll say hello to my brother-in-law for you too. Oh I know, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, you yeah. know, Ryan. It's still a small town. We know a lot of a lot of the same people, so it's good. Thanks again for spending the time, Randy. God bless and stay safe, Brandon. Thanks, Randy. So there it is, my interview with Randy Rayburn on Nashville Restaurant Radio. Thanks for tuning in today, and we've got lots more episodes coming up this week. 
and hope you guys all stay safe out there and um love you guys bye bye